Hey, what's going on, Warriors? Jeff here from Warrior Life, and welcome to podcast episode number 464. This week's show is actually brought to you with a very heavy heart over the passing of a dear friend. Not, not just of mine, but of the entire survival and tactical training community who recognized the, the deep experience and commitment of a lifelong student of survival, Kevin Reeve. Now, if you've been following us for any amount of time, you've most likely heard Kevin on several of our podcasts, and he was a regular and willing guest on some of our members-only trainings that we had over the years as well. In fact, when we relaunched a few years ago with the Warrior Life Academy, Kevin was the very first instructor that I reached out to be one of our hand-selected training advisors for our all-access members, and he didn't even hesitate to say yes and offer his help with anything that we needed. Now, many of you who are a Warrior Life Academy all-access member You may have seen Kevin's quick win video responses to member questions, and Kevin and I have been planning a special training workshop for the last couple of years on a topic that he was truly an expert in, urban survival caching. Unfortunately, Kevin had been battling progressive kidney failure, and he was in and out of the hospital and on dialysis, so it was a real challenge to take part in a lot of the training that he wanted to get to. Even still... It was only a couple of months ago that he had reached out to me from the hospital with the hopes of getting to that training for our members. Kevin passed away on July 5th at the age of 66, and he is truly going to be missed by his friends, family, and everybody that he touched and helped become more prepared through his many, many decades of training. And Kevin really was a -a one-of-a-kind trainer. Now, I was fortunate enough to set up a special training event in Austin, Texas for Kevin's signature urban escape and evasion class several years ago. And let me tell you, it was unlike any other training I've ever taken part in or ever even seen before. So imagine being handcuffed with a bag over your head, a vicious German shepherd's hot breath on the back of your neck, um, Kevin with a high voltage stun gun nipping at your ears, And then you're left alone to pick the lock on your handcuffs and then escape the facility where you're being held. And that wasn't the end of the exercise. Once you were outside, you had to navigate your way through the city, access a secret cache of supplies that you had pre-staged in a covert location, all while evading your captors who were hunting you the entire time. And while you were on the run, you also had to perform various exercises, such as finding a way to like convince a total stranger to give you money. Like Kevin was really, he was very creative in in creating these challenges for everybody. And if you were spotted by Kevin and the thugs that he, that he brought along is his buddies that were all following around, just tr- like hunting you down in their van. If they saw you, you were grabbed and thrown in the back of the van. You were forced to figure out how you were going to escape again. Like they really made it tough for you. And I might add, it was a torrential downpour the entire day. Uh, Kevin's training was, he was featured in several magazines and he was on television show 60 Minutes. But to Kevin, it wasn't just some tactical training class. Kevin didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He walked the path of a warrior. Now, in tribute to Kevin, I wanted to share with you one of the members only roundtable discussions that he took part in for what was our New World Patriot Alliance community within our our modern combat and survival brand that we used to have. And and to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the depth of his experience and the amazing contribution that he gave to our entire industry. Now, I will tell you that this is going back several years before we had availability to the fancy-schmancy recording equipment that we now have, so the audio may seem a little old school for you, but 
we 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 did we gave it a little bit of a facelift. Let's just say that. And, and to complicate things, and this is a true testament to Kevin's dedication. He lived in a very remote area of Utah where he had horrible internet and phone reception. So every time he would take part in our training, he had to get in his vehicle and drive several miles from home just to get a clear enough signal to be able to talk with us. So you may hear that reflected in the audio quality as well. But again, we've done some extra editing for this recording to give it a facelift. So please enjoy this Q&A conversation with Kevin and listen carefully to his advice. You will be well served to take every word he says and apply it to your own preparedness training. Let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. First question comes in from Theodore from Park City, Utah. And uh, he says, Kevin, Jeff has said that he learned a lot about caching in your urban survival course. What are some of the items I would put into a cache container for the purposes of escape and evasion? Uh, Kevin, I, I have, I think I've written about it or I've mentioned it in some of my other podcasts before about, about the course that I took with you. And, and I remember caching was a part of that. And, and not the type of, just for everybody's kind of purposes, the, the type of caching that we did there was really for escape and evasion. And, uh, it wasn't like we were putting, you know, three years of survival food down in a, uh, a shipping container underneath the ground or anything like that. So, so in that context, cause I'm, I'm pretty sure Theodore is talking about things that I, he said that I've said, and I've always talked about it in that context. So, so for escape and evasion, can you give people a little, I guess maybe even just start off with a quick summary of why you would even put together a caching container in an area where you live, perhaps for the purposes of escape and evasion? And what are some of the, the major items that people should put in there? Yeah, no problem. Um, well, the idea of a, of a cache in a, in a hostile or permissive environment is that you may not be able to get to or you may have stripped from you uh, all the tools that are going to be really useful. And uh, having a cache gives you a backup uh, in the case of a hostile environment. And in a, in a permissive environment, it gives you the opportunity to have things stored that you can't necessarily carry on you. For example, if I lived in California and I worked in a, an office building that did not allow me to have a firearm on the premises, I would probably have a cache uh, off-premises that allowed me to access that in case of need. So the idea here is that in a permissive environment, you can't carry it, so you cache it. And then when there's a, a loss of the rule of law, when everything breaks down, you can go for it and retrieve it and have it with you. So uh, immediately, of course, what comes to mind is the first, one of the first things you'll want to cache will be a weapon. Uh, secondly, I would suggest water and food. Third, maybe uh, a little cash, not a ton. Fourth, um, I would put uh, a first aid kit and maybe set some tools, a uh, multi-tool and a knife as a minimum. And, and that just gives you the opportunity to replenish or replace whatever you've either lost from uh, being captured or from... Uh, perspective of not being able to carry that stuff all the time anyway. Yeah. So and the it, idea is, 
Go ahead. No, I think I was going to say probably the same thing that you were going to say. So go ahead. Um, so the the uh, one of the important things here is that whatever you cast has to be something you really don't care a great deal about, because otherwise it becomes an anchor to you that you have to go and get. So I was talking to a, a dev group guy that had had told me a little bit about some casts that he had done. And he told me that he cast uh, a Tokara and some magazines and some uh, some ammunition. And I said, Tokara, man, you could have cashed like a Beretta or something nice. And he goes, yeah, but then I had to, you know, then I would have felt like I had to go back and get it. I said, how much money did you put in? He says, a couple hundred bucks. I said, that's not going to get you very far. He said, well, I didn't want, and that's not the point. The point is that if I felt like I had, if it was $2,000, I'd feel like I had to go back and get it. And I'd be risking, potentially risking my life. So part of the process is to come up with things that are replaceable. You know, a $14 Mora knife is a great blade, but you're not going to be concerned about it as you are with a $200 top knife. So, you know, you're always looking for the, the, the economy of a cash as well. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't what I was going to say, but, um, but I, I think what I was going to say was basically when, when people's, the, their perception of what a cash is for the purpose of escape and evasion, it, it's the, it's the stuff that you might just need just to get you through or past right. with, you know, an area without rule of law to get to someplace safer. So, you know, just a little bit of food, just something to get some carbohydrates in yeah. you. It doesn't even need to be like an, an MRE and a couple of bottles of water. Yeah, I put a map in there as well. I forgot to mention that. But you know, having an MRE, uh, a map, a compass, uh, so, so that you can navigate and uh, just just those very basic items. The purpose isn't to be a full-on survival kit. It's just to replenish what you may not have or get you. Uh, out of the uh, immediate area uh, in a safe manner. Yeah, yeah, that was a good question. I thought for me when when that was our assignment when I was going through the class. I mean, I've I've done caching, but I had never thought of it in terms of just like the escape and evasion type sure. of a cache. And so when our assignment was okay to put it together. What I really loved about your instruction was that you didn't tell us, okay, here's your list. Go put this stuff into your container. You basically said your job is to put together a small cache and go ahead and, and find a place to put it that you're going to be able to get to it for the practical exercise, which I will not reveal what that is. But it, in any case, it really changes your mindset when you're walking through Walmart and whatever of what what could I use? I mean, putting myself in that situation, what are some of the things that I might use or, or need to use in that type of situation? I mean, some things that I put in there, I remember like I, I went and got a, like um, a subway card, you know, like a, not a subway for riding, but like a, um, a food card. A sandwich card. Right, yeah. exactly. So, and I thought, well, maybe I could use that for, for eating, but maybe I could also use it for bartering if I needed something for, you know, from a homeless person or something like that, maybe they would have gear and, you know, this is a way that I could maybe barter something for them. So it really, your course really makes you think, which helps to absorb the information as well. But um, that's, that's one of the things I really loved about it. It really got, really kind of stirred the creative juices. Um, right, right. And that's, that's very intentional design. 
we don't give you a list of things that you really need for cash. I, I expect you to think about it a little bit and come up with a list of things. And and sometimes people put, you know, twenty dollars in a set of lockpicks, and sometimes they put um, a lot more. They're a lot more thoughtful about it. Yeah. And I think you get a lot more out of it the more thought you put into it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question is from Pike from Naperville, Illinois, which is close. I used to live closer to Naperville. Um, he says, I listened to your Modern Combat and Survival interview about improvised weapons, and I had a lot of great tips I had never heard of before. Question, if you were plopped down in the middle of an urban area during a collapse where there was lots of materials for you to use, what would be the number one first weapon you would create for yourself? Why and what materials would you use? It's a good well, question. The simplest thing is that it's it's a great question, and the simplest thing is that you just need a striking weapon. So 18 inches of rebar with a parachute cord handle to cushion your hand a little bit, that would be something to start with. Um, but you can get much more complex as you go. Uh, one of my favorites is, is one that was just done by a student. He was in a, he was behind a bike shop, and he found a uh, bike sprocket. And he found uh, about a 24-inch piece of uh, one-and-a-half-inch branch. And he split it, and he slid the sprocket down into it and lashed it with parachute cord and created this amazing, awesome, incredibly look, uh, medieval-looking um, battle axe. Hmm. And it was just like one of the most innovative things I've ever laid eyes on. I just loved it. <laughs> yeah. I made him give it to me. <laughs> you made him give it to you. So, you I know, know you have a collection yeah, of these. Get, <laughs> yeah. And you can get really, really, you know, complex with it. It can be some, something as simple as a piece of chain, maybe with a padlock on the end of it, or a uh, uh, piece of rebar. But, you know, sometimes guys go all out. I had the Marine group once that lashed a meat cleaver onto the end of a piece of rebar. It is a zombie-killing machine. It's just amazing. It is my favorite of all time. Yeah. I remember you telling me one time that somebody had taken, I think it was PVC pipe, and even made a crossbow out of it. Yeah. 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 Um, that was actually pretty good. And uh, we replicate that now in the advanced class. We, we do a, a section on improvised weapons in that class, and and uh, um, one of the weapons that we, we demonstrate is a PVC Stuff. And it's pretty good, man. It was it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh next question is from John R from Coldwater, Arkansas. Uh we've seen lots of visions of looting in the, on the news. We've seen lots of visions of looting on the news during events that have happened like in Ferguson, New Orleans during Katrina and others. I live in the suburbs of a city about 40 miles west of the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. So I don't really feel threatened like I would inside of a large urban center. Should I still be prepared yeah. for this type of event? Do I have to worry about it ever happening? And if so, what's the first step I should take to prepare myself? Well, in general, when there is looting going on, it is looting for gain. Most of the time, guys are out there stealing big screen TVs and Nikes. And uh, that's, the, that's the, the rub. You know, that's what they're after. And they're not going house to house uh, and taking, uh, you know, jewelry and stuff. That that can happen. It did in New Orleans, but it's it's kind of further down the pike in terms of of breakdowns. And and generally the suburbs are going to be a little bit safer than the than the main uh, 
urban areas as well. So if you uh, live in a in a suburban area with in a somewhat outside of the city, you're probably not going to see that for some time. But eventually, I would guess, um, and and I did an article in uh, ASG's Prepper Survival Guide Field Manual, I think it's called, about the breakdown of uh, civil society and the four five stages of civil breakdown. And in the first stage, two second stage, not too much. Third stage is going to be pretty local. This is the anarchy phase. That phase is going to be pretty local to the urban area. I wouldn't expect to see a lot of that in the suburbs. But when you get to the to the to the fourth stage, which is the tribal stage, people will abandon together for the purpose of economy of scale, and they will begin roving for resources. And that's what that's the point at which you need to be concerned about protecting yourself. I would say always be prepared to protect yourself. But I would be, if I were 40 miles from an urban area, I would say the chances of them getting to you soon are pretty slim. You've probably got a couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks, if there's no restoration of power. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense, but, uh, you know, it's, it's at the tribal phase when when groups form together for economy of scale and go out to gather resources, that's when you have to start worrying because they'll sweep through a neighborhood and just clean it up, clean it out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you probably want to be ready to defend yourself at that point. So you're saying the first step to t- that somebody should take is have some means of, of protection just in case something comes up. Before you put up any moats around your property or anything like that, the first step is really to just make sure you have something, preferably maybe a firearm, a legal firearm to be able to use for, for defense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, an, an AR, a shotgun. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that, um, you know, I mean, that's from the standpoint of collapse, but I think that people can sometimes get in the trap of thinking that they're safe. Like, I live in a rural area. Am, am I worried? No. But if I have lived in suburban areas, so I lived on the outskirts of Chicago. I wasn't really worried about, you know, roving gangs right off the bat coming out of there. But I remember, you know, during times like Ferguson, um, you know, not the Ferguson, well, maybe like the Ferguson riots, but... Um, anytime that you, if you live near like a, a college campus or anything like that, anything where there can be protests can, there's lots of different things. And I know Kevin, you and I have talked about this before, like different things that can kind of, they start out kind of peaceful. I mean, look at, we've even seen political rallies that have turned, you know, violent and they've fortunately not turned into gigantic, you know, violent events, but We've seen things that started out that way that that have been able, you know, have turned out that way, and then they just get out of hand, and then you've got kind of instant anarchy for a short term, not a collapse type thing. But um, I remember even, I think it was in, I want to say it was Madison, Wisconsin. I think I did an article on it a couple of years ago. I, call, I think I called it like the Great Pumpkin Riot or something like that, because I think it was like on Halloween, and some college students were. I don't know. It was like, I don't know what the I don't know what the deal was, but it was they like were just drinking in the downtown area. So yeah, climbing up on the light poles, and somebody else started throwing stuff at them, and then there was fights breaking out. But before long, they were burning couches and uh, dumpsters, and it turned into a pretty widespread riot. Now, if you live close to campus like that, then that's got to be something you would be worried about. Yeah, Actually, you in those kinds of situations, you just hunker down and wait it out. 
Yeah. You don't need to go out on your front porch and scatter with a scatter gun and start blowing people away. You know, that's going to end you, cost you uh, some serious. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, There's always, there's always a possibility of, of something happening in a, in an area where there's a lot of young people. College campuses are a prime example. Um, Rory Miller has a book out there on violence, which I absolutely love. I can't remember the name of the book. I just remember the author. Anyway, he talks about the monkey thing, which happens when you get young teenagers together in large groups. And the monkey dance is posturing. It says something. It's people jumping up and down and, and cursing each other and calling each other out. And, and he says that's not dangerous violence in general. Mm-hmm. It's when you get... Um, highly motivated sociopaths on the warpath that you have to really worry. So, you know, the, the college campus stuff is generally speaking more along the lines of the, of Rory Miller's uh, monkey dance. Mm. Whereas the, uh, some of the more serious things that happened in New Orleans following Katrina would have to fall under the, uh, the more uh, serious type of violence. Yeah. And collapse like without truly without rule of law sort of thing. Right. Uh, um, here's a good one uh, from Captain Dill from Lebanon, Missouri. Uh, there are all sorts of fear-based stories of how a collapse could happen, and with all the slick marketers out there, I always wonder what's BS and what I should really worry about. My question is: Do you sincerely worry about a large-scale event happening in the U.S. that could cause a change to our way of life? And if so, what do you think is the number one threat we face in the future that worries you the most? Well, there's there's two things. What's most likely and what's going to be most damaging? Most likely would probably be some form of widespread civil unrest. Could be the EBT card system fails. Um, you know, Matt Bracken talks a lot about that kind of thing. And, and I think that's probably likely to happen. The worst case scenario for me is an EMP. An electromagnetic pulse attack on the U.S. It destroys the electrical infrastructure. That's the worst thing. And I say that's bad because, you know, all the projections are between 80 and 90 percent die off in one year. And, uh, very few people will survive that, that return to the dark ages. So I would say that's the worst case scenario I can imagine. Is it likely? It's probably far less likely than just local civil unrest. You live in LA or Detroit or New Orleans or St. Louis or New York City or Trenton or Newark. And, you know, there's, we just saw Baton Rouge had a, had a race-based incident this weekend. And what's going to happen as a result of that? Nobody knows yet. We'll see. But, you know, those kinds of things have a tendency to spread other cities if there's uh if there's sufficient reason you know if the police crack down real hard on a protest you, know, you could see some ugly stuff happening that's probably far more likely than uh, a white scale loss of power mm-hmm. so yeah i think uh, i think if i were if i were to evaluate it i would say on a, on a spectrum you know a loss of civility temporary loss of civility is pretty high likelihood low danger in the immediate area. On the other end of the spectrum, very low likelihood, very high danger would be a And so, you know, 
kind of we kind of slide in between those. You know, natural disasters tend to be regional. So if we had a huge earthquake hit Southern California, you know, it's going to be it's going to suck for the people in Southern California, but it's not going to be too bad for the people in Nevada. Yeah. So you know, it's just going to be a matter of of evaluating it on the uh, how how likely versus how bad. That's kind of how I would look at it. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, I think. Well, I think um, you know you're saying like a, a like a truly a a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for like a, a change of something that changes life as we know it on a large scale. Um, certainly, an EMP or you know something that took out electricity would change would change our our way of life. Um, but low probability on that. Is there any other thing that um, you think is something that is a true concern because he, he's right. I mean, I don't expect zombies to start coming out of the ground and walking, walking across the planet. But are there other right. things that that are maybe a higher probability or that that should be on the radar of likelihood that really could be a wide scale change of life as we know it sort of a scenario? Well, I could see um, a well coordinated and brazen series of terrorist attacks that could force us into a martial law situation. Mm-hmm. I would be more afraid of the martial law than the terrorist attacks, but, um, you know, that could be easily something that could happen. And then a pandemic is another one I would worry about. Very dangerous, very high on the death scale, but probably less likely, um, depending on who you talk to. You know, it's probably more towards the, the uh, more likely than an EMP, but uh, less likely than a a terrorist attack. So, you know, uh, I would say uh, we are overdue, of course, for a pandemic, but we also have uh, some pretty good systems in place to try and limit that. I don't know if it would work or not, but yeah. who knows? I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's the, the answer. You know, just really don't know. Yeah, we can speculate, and I, I'm really good at speculating. But, <laughs> Do I actually know anything? The answer is probably not. And and you're right. There are a lot of fear mongers out there who uh, who create a lot of uh, business for themselves by fear mongering. And um, it's a it's a temptation. I have to admit. I I just talk about it in terms of, of some simple facts. There were uh, I think it was 1,100 kidnappings in Mexico in 2014. And that seems like, well, you know, it's a city of how, or it's a country of how many million people, billion people, whatever, uh, half a billion or whatever. But when you consider the fact that, um, the, the large number of those kidnappings were patriots, Americans in Mexico, and then that percentage is a much larger percentage of the overall population of Americans. So now it becomes a real potential problem. Yeah. So you just have to you have to kind of look at it, get a feel for what what is appropriate for your area. What are you what are you concerned about? You know, if you're living if you live in central Missouri, what are you worried about? What kinds of natural disasters? Well, you got to worry about tornadoes. You have to worry about um, harsh hmm. winter storms. I don't yeah. know. Or if you live near like a nuclear nuclear plant or something like that, like it really does come down to self assessments. Yeah. Yep, yep. And, and, you know, there's, there's 
people who say the uh, the end is nigh, and I'm not I'm not saying I, I haven't done that. I certainly recognize threats when I see them, but uh, you know I, I'm not seeing anything that says, well, we have to be immediately worried. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you know. Yeah. Where I, at least not where I'm at. Right. Um, question from just the, just the num the letter R from Mansfield, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been wanting to take your urban escape and evasion course for a while now and just haven't pulled the trigger, so to speak. Uh, what's been the biggest benefit that you've seen from civilians who have taken the class? In other words, what skill or mindset do you notice them getting that you feel has the most value from a survival perspective? Great question. Um, what I see is that people walk away with a sense of confidence about how they can handle themselves in an urban environment they really didn't have before. When they start looking at the uh, at the urban environment from the perspective of what resources are here and how can I access them, it gives them a, a, a feeling of confidence and competence to uh, to have to endure. It, it, so if they're in a situation where they have to endure a a loss of stability or a loss of power or a loss of uh, transportation systems, then they have alternatives already in mind. They know what their priorities are. They know how to move. They know how to act and defend themselves and all kinds of uh, survival priorities for food and water and so forth. That stuff, that's, that's really valuable to anybody who lives and works in an urban environment. It just It just helps them to kind of relax a little bit. So, you know, the, the confidence and the competence that comes from the class is the thing that I say gives me the most uh, pleasure, the most uh, I enjoy I enjoy seeing them leave with that. You know, that's what, when we do the debrief at the end of the day on Saturday or on Wednesday, depending on the class, um, they almost always say, I just never realized what a resource-rich environment this city is. I never realized how easy it is to find stuff that you need. How, and once you pointed it out to me, now I feel really confident. And that, that really helps a lot. That gives me a good, good sense that we're doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good analogy, um, that, that I experienced was, um, if you've, if, if an event were to happen, something where you had to escape from an area in the urban area, or whatever, it's kind of like the mouse being dropped for the very first time inside of a maze. You know, it's the, it's a brand new experience under, you know, you you feel trapped. It's like, wait a minute, where do I go? What do I do? I don't you know what's going on here. I'm, you're trying to kind of assess everything and make a decision and figure out are, you know, is there a way out of this or whatever? And, and that's kind of a panic moment, and that's what most people go through when there's any sort of event. But after you go through this training and are put under the, the circumstances that Kevin puts you under and learn the skills that he teaches you, you know, after the tenth time that that, that that mouse has dropped into the maze, he's like, oh, I know there's a way out, so it's probably not here. I'll go around here. Wait a minute. I smell cheese. Okay, I'm going to follow this. You know, so I think it's – there's no sense of panic when something happens because you're prepared, because you know what to do. And even without any materials on you whatsoever, you you realize that there are resources for you that other people won't even notice 
that you now know are there and it and it gives you that that clear mind to be able to make the right decisions to help you get to safety so i have to totally agree with that right yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good assessment it, that, that's a good analogy is that you know if you have no concept of what to do and how to do it you will be overwhelmed by the situation you have to have some stress inoculation and that's what the class is all about the class is all about giving you a set of priorities, a set of responses, teaching you what they are and how to do them, and then giving you the opportunity to practice it in a real-time experience. And uh, when, when people are done with that, they have this strong sense of, I really was overwhelmed by this before, now I feel okay. I'm yeah. saying that the situations won't be difficult. You know, just, just the very nature of the fact that it's a situation means it's probably going to suck. But um, if, if you do as the Marines always advocate, and that is embrace the suck versus fight the suck versus whine about the suck, then it's going to be okay. Yeah. We have a, a generation, I, have, I hate to go on this rant, but I'm going to anyway. Um, we have a, 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 we have as a society done everything we can to remove discomfort. Everything is about being comfortable, about seeking pleasure, about being happy, and, and very, very little is taught anymore in the way of how do you endure hard things. Consequently, we have, you know, a generation of uh, college students these days who, at the sight of uh, Trump's name on the sidewalk, have to go to a safe room. They have lost their resilience. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I'm a, I, one of my favorite new books is, well, been out for quite a while, actually, by Taylor called Anti-Fragile. And what he says in the, his premise is that there are people who, under the worst situations imaginable, can prosper. They don't just rebound, they prosper. And that's what we like to think we're teaching. We're teaching anti-fragility, teaching you how to be prosperous in a situation that other people may not survive, other people may endure, and we want you to embrace the suck and go into it with the attitude of I'm going to prosper. Yeah. Yep. I Good. Know that's kind of stressful, but that's, that's, that's how we like to think about it. Yeah. Um, got a couple questions here about firearms. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of lump both of these together. So one is from Lisa S. from Mankato, Minnesota. I think Mankato, wasn't that like um, Little House on the Prairie? I think they always used to go to Mankato. I'm assuming it's the same place. Um, Lisa says, uh, which, that, by the way, it's my, it's my all, tender moment here. That's my all-time favorite show. I can't watch it without crying. I'm just a big, it's my estrogen level. I think my estrogen levels are way too high. Um, Lisa S., I know, way too much information. I was the diver at that point in my life. <laughs> There you go. Um, Lisa says, uh, what's your favorite survival gun that you own and why? I don't know if this one is a a separate question or not, but um, Ross M. from North Platte, Nebraska says, for a survival weapon, should I have a .22, an air rifle, or something bigger? I always wonder about balancing caliber and knockdown power with stealth if it was some kind of of a shit hit the fan scenario. So, I guess you know, looking at those together, what's your what's your favorite your your best choice for a survival firearm? 
I would say probably for a, a, a hunting firearm, as a defense weapon, I would always go with an AR-15. But for a uh, hunting weapon, the AR-15 makes too much noise unless you have a, a can for it, a, a suppressor. But a uh, 22, like the 1022, the Ruger 1022 is my favorite gun. It's like a it's like the AR-15 in that there's an endless number of accessories and ways of, of modifying modifying it to fit your needs. Um, if you use subsonic ammo for hunting, then you don't get the noise, and uh, or use the suppressor for hunting, then you don't get the noise. Uh, but the 10.2 is extremely reliable. It just never it never uh, it never stops. It's just one of those guns that will always function. I shouldn't say always, but it's a very highly functional gun. And uh, the 22 caliber long rifle. Sorry, motorcycle the other path. Uh, 22 long rifle is by far my my survival round of choice. But yeah. uh, Colobri makes a uh, very quiet subsonic round that uh, you know it's 50 to 50 yards for squirrels and and uh, uh, whatever. And that would be a really good hunting hunting round for for uh, for a survival gun. So 10.22, I ha- they make a breakdown version of it just in a backpack, uh, which is phenomenal. It's a great little rifle, and uh, you can get 30 round magazines, you can get collapsible stocks, you can get whatever you want in the way of accessories. Yeah. So uh, you know, for promoting a brand, but I think uh, a 22 round is a a good hunting round, and uh, the ten point two is probably the best of it. Yeah, and, and you can and you can carry just a ton of ammo too. Very, very uh, yeah. easy. Yeah, a brick of ammo weighs the same as two magazines of AR-15 ammo. So. Yeah. Um, I think this is the last question. Look, everybody, if you're if you're um, on now, if you are on the phone, you can press star two on your handset and you can join us live. Or if you want to just use the form that's on the page, which is what everybody's been doing, actually, um, you can go ahead and submit it there. So this is the last question that I show right now in the lineup, and it's from Gloria B. from Visalia. Visalia I think it's Vis- I don't know if it's Visalia or Visalia, California. Um, uh, I just heard your interview with Jeff on the five stages of collapse, and you mentioned the current collapse taking place in Venezuela. It's pretty shocking to see these kinds of events happen, but I worry about us going through something similar with the with the economy. What would you say are the biggest lessons we should learn from the Venezuela collapse and how to prepare for something like that? Well, first of all, the, the, the number one lesson from the Venezuela collapse is that the government is not there for you. The, the government is there to take care of itself and perpetuate its own existence. They are not there to take care of you as a, as a citizen. They have no responsibility for that. You are responsible for your own protection, for your own uh, survival. So if you want to survive a, a breakdown like that, you need to be prepared with a, a series of five or six things. you got to have food. You have to have water of some sort or access to water. You have to have medical supplies. You have to have uh, weapons and, and, and a means of protecting yourself. You know, at least those four things, we could go further into into more, you know, fuel uh, to uh, cook or, or heat and so forth. But at least with those four or five things, you can endure the breakdown as it happens. You have barter material as well, you know, that there are certain things that people will always trade for. Cigarettes, alcohol, 
you know, the, the thin tax will be the what you're able to, to uh, exchange for coffee. You know, I know how I am with caffeine, and, and I guarantee you that if somebody has a case of Monster, <laughs> I'll probably be really happy to trade. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's interesting about what you said, like the government, you know, don't don't count on the government to take care of you. I've seen lots of lots of photos coming out of that. And you see these massive, just massive lines of people waiting for like government food centers and things like that. Yeah. I mean, they're just they seem like they're miles long. And then compare that with, you know, I've also seen visions of people who have raided food trucks. Now, maybe those food trucks were on the way to the distribution point for the people waiting in line. But I, we have a picture that we posted on our blog of some two people walking away with a, with le, what looks like a side of beef. Okay, so so the my guess is that that day that they raided that truck and walked away with a side of beef, those people that were probably in three miles of a line waiting for the government handout probably went home hungry that night, while somebody else right. was having filet mignon. You know, so um, I think you can always expect that one. You really. In, you know, I think that's a really good thing to think about. Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go outside your home and wait in a three mile long line waiting for a granola bar? Or, you know, what can you do ahead of time to be able to prepare for, you know, putting away extra food or being able to have maybe sure. food cached even or things like that, that, um, that will make sure that you're not in that, that hungry three mile long line. Right. Now, what, one of the things that's happening in Venezuela is that people are starving. As they do that, their body mass shrinks. And you don't want to be the only guy on the block whose body mass hasn't shrunk because people will figure it out. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it, 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 it behooves you to, um, uh, if you store food, to use it judiciously. I would say, you know, I, I am of the opinion that I will not deny people food. If I have food, I will share it. Now, I will share it in exchange for work. I will share it uh, at my, uh, you know, at, 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 if someone asks me for food, I will feed them. But if they demand food, we'll have an issue. So as I look at as I look at the situation down there, I wonder uh, how that's playing out. I really wish I could get more information. I've been studying as much as I can, and I can tell you that um, boy, there is a huge disconnect between the, the party apparatchik, the, the people who are eating filet mignon at the country club after a round of golf, and those in the inner cities, in the barrios, who are literally starving. And if anybody had any idea what was really going on there, they were storming the citadel. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's just uh, it's just a matter of time before that happens. Yeah. And then everybody will be starving. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting well, they, to see this. They've, they've completely destroyed their production capability. So there is the only the only way now that um, they can get food is if it's imported. And they have no money with which to purchase food. So what what I read yesterday was happening in in Venezuela is that people were surging over the border into uh Colombia to get food. Hmm. They they overwhelmed a number of border stations just to 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 go into a grocery store and buy food. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think there'll be lots of lessons learned as we watch this kind of break down brick by brick, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm paying attention for sure. Yeah. And I think uh, that uh, the person who asked that question that was in Bethalia was was right in suggesting that we can learn lessons from what's happening there. Because I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that we could see a similar kind of disruption. <laughs> you know, if you look at if you look at what happened in Paris or in Belgium to the economy for the days following a terrorist attack, if there were 10 terrorist attacks in the U.S., uh, it would stop the economy. You know, it would, yeah. at least temporarily, it would just stymie uh, the economy. So, you know, that, that's, that's a dangerous aspect of terrorism. Yeah, that's... know they can stop. Yeah, that's that, that's interesting because, I mean, you know, people think about – we talked about e, EMPs, we talked about pandemics, we talked about all those things. But when um, – you know, and, and there – you know, certainly right after 9-11, did anybody want to go up in the Sears Tower after that? Well, no. I mean, people thought, well, you know, they're going to – what if they fly a plane into that building? But – and in and, and working in counterterrorism, um, you know, for myself, I worked in security uh, security companies and uh, executive level and for shopping centers. And I can tell you that right after 9-11, like our whole world changed as far as what we focused in on because we knew where the weak – and we knew that the terrorists knew where the real weak spots were. And if you want a real good lesson to learn from that, it was the Washington, D.C. sniper, which was just – Basically, a kid, and I don't know if it was his father or his—I think it was like his stepfather. And you know, they weren't—they weren't sniping police officers off the corner or whatever. They were sniping like the woman pumping gas at the gas station, the woman loading up the uh, the back of her truck at Home Depot. You know, all of a sudden, all it took was two people in the trunk of a car with a rifle to shut down an entire city. Now. Okay, after 9-11, hey, honey, look, don't go up into the Sears Tower just in case they decide to throw another plane inside of there. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. if I live in Washington, D.C., and I know that my, you know, they're taking people out of gas stations, like, honey, don't go out of the house. Like, pull the pull the blinds right. down because you don't know where it's coming from. So you're right. I mean, 10, okay. 10 attacks right. in, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the country, you know, anywhere in the country – suddenly makes it very personal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and nobody goes out shopping. Nobody goes out to get gas. Nobody goes on trips. And the economy just shuts down. You know, yeah. and it can have a huge impact on on, uh, on the, the long-term viability of the, of the economy. It's already struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, I think that was the last question. <laughs> Oh, it's such happy stories in our industry. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. On the other hand, my wife always is quick to remind me, and she makes me repeat it as a mantra, our best days are ahead of us. Yeah. But, uh, regardless of how bad things may seem, it'll also give us an opportunity to reconnect closely to our friends and our families, to work together and to be positive and happy uh, in our communities. So. I look at it from a very positive perspective overall. All right, it's Jeff back here again from Warrior Life, and that wraps up this week's special tribute show to Kevin Reeve of On Point Tactical. I highly encourage you to go back into our pod, our podcast archives and listen to more of Kevin's training. 
the easiest way for you to find them is to go to our website at warriorlife.com and then find Kevin's bio page in the about us section. And you'll see some links there to all of his previous work that he did with us that was outside of our member training. So it's all the public stuff that we did. And to Kevin, we'll miss you, brother. I mean, you, you are in a much better place after a long, hard battle. And trust me, you have left a legacy that will never die. And I know, I know that even though you are no longer here with us on earth, I know you are still living like a warrior. Peace be with you, brother. You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us. And leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive.